It is also a deep pleasure to be here with Kate this morning. I remember the first time I think Kate and I met was in New York City at Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. Uh, I, I had not yet come here to Union. Kate had just graduated, and she has the wonderful capability of making you feel as though you have known her all your life the very first time you meet her. And I have enjoyed the ability to be in fellowship and friendship with her ever since. As a matter of fact, she worked for the seminary as director of admissions, did a phenomenal job of that, so phenomenal that when she told me she was leaving to go to a call in a congregation following God's call, I found myself in the dubious position of trying to stand in the way of God. <laughs> I tried to get Kate to stay, but the Holy Spirit was stronger than I was, and Kate went on down to Chapel Hill, and now it's so delightful to see Kate back here in Richmond. It is an honor to be able to be here in this moment for you, Kate. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Gracious God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The scripture reading this morning is in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, and it begins at verse 16. But before that section of the chapter initiates, it is helpful to know a little bit about what is going on before. It is a sad moment in the Gospel of Matthew. We find John the Baptist in prison. And John apparently is not sure that Jesus is the one that he and others have been waiting for from God. And so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus if he is the one, and he sends them from prison with a great deal of hope and expectation. Jesus later speaks about John, and he speaks with a sense of sadness as well, that John has been speaking and people have not been responding to him. They've been treating him as a blowing reed in the wind. It's there with that recognition that we come to our text this morning. Let us listen for God's word to us. But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. When I first sat down to meditate on preparing a sermon for this wonderful occasion of Kate's installation as associate pastor of Second Presbyterian Church, this was my prayer. Dear God, please take me to a scripture text with the most extroverted person in the New Testament. 
What biblical person could do justice to the kind of vitality and energy and tireless optimism and perpetual motion that Kate brings to life and fate and church? Jesus? Could it be Jesus? I thought, no, it can't be Jesus. Jesus is too slow to keep up with Kate. I can see Jesus sitting down on a big stone beside the Sea of Galilee out of breath and saying, hold up a minute, Kate, while he simultaneously looks up into heaven, shaking his head and asking his God, who is this woman? (laughs) Kate, I am convinced, runs on resurrection power, endless, bottomless spiritual energy. No matter the daunting circumstance, she seems to always find a way to rise above it. She just never seems phased by it. For example, Kate, the caped crusader. I remember my first experience with the Board of Trustees of Union Theological Seminary and Presbyterian School of Christian Education, as it was called when I was called to be president. I was scared to death. These powerful and renowned women and men, a former governor, great philanthropists, legendary scholars, influential pastors, cherished educators, physicians and lawyers and teachers and businessmen and women, I was literally shaking from anxiety the first time I sat in their company. Kate came into this group wearing a cape and thrusting an allegedly magical wand, and she wholly captured them. Laughing away whatever anxiety I might have had for the board meeting at that moment, I myself thought, who is this woman? I'm no psychologist, but I think I'm right in saying that Kate Fiedler is an extrovert. (laughs) Is there anyone in here who might offer a different social diagnosis? (laughs) I didn't think so. An introvert myself, I have absolutely no idea what to make of extroverts. Extroverts are so extra. They are like crazy people to me. Aliens. They might as well have stepped off a spaceship. And Christian extroverts? Righteously crazy. While the rest of us Christians walk around the church and the world with our grim faith faces, huddled away from the world in our sleepy sanctuaries, mumbling prayers for the people, even though we are so often tired of being around the people, glumly eating the bread and sadly sipping the wine of the Eucharist like it is our literal last meal. The Christian extroverts are running all over the church and world like an eight-week-old golden retriever puppy. (laughs) Happy, excited, perky, bubbly, powered by batteries that never need recharging because they are apparently plugged directly into the charismatic force of the Holy Spirit. I get tired just thinking about them. (laughs) Extroverts are also, I know, misunderstood. They want to help us introverts, but I don't know about the rest of you introverts. I don't trust them. (laughs) All that movement, all that happiness, they're up to something. But no, an article I recently read says that they really just want to help, and they wish us introverts would realize that. So the article shared several things that extroverts want introverts to know. They want us to know they're not trying to get you out of your shell because they don't like who you are. They're just trying to help. They can't read your mind. You need to be more clear. They can't help oversharing. They just like to talk. 
They love being around other people. So if they invite more people along, it's not because they don't want to be alone with you. You can stop by whenever you want. And no, they're not just being polite. They do enjoy alone time once in a while. Doesn't all of that sound just like Jesus? I'm telling you, I think Jesus was an extrovert. And I'm not the only one who believes it. The people in Jesus' time believed it. That certainly comes across in the way Jesus described the people of his time in the scripture text we have just read. This text is about all people, but two particular types of people who represent the movement of God's reign breaking into human history. According to this scripture, John the Baptist represented the movement of God's reign in an introverted way. And Jesus, well, Jesus was out there representing with extra written all over him. But the people of Jesus' time rejected them both. The people of Jesus' time responded to neither one of them. To describe the different ways that John the Baptist and Jesus presented the movement of God's reign in the world, Jesus uses the concept of a children's game of make-believe. The children playing the game are upset because the adults in the room refuse to respond to them, play with them, no matter how the children configure the game. Whether the children make up a wedding game with lots of dancing or a funeral game with lots of lament, the adults refuse to play. Jesus sees the same thing happening with the people of his time. No matter which way the reign of God is presented to them as a wedding feast or a funeral lament, the people do not want to play. The people do not want to respond. In his commentary on this text, I think Daniel Harrington is right. He says, John's ascetic lifestyle identifies him with the funeral game. John is the gospel introvert. Yes, he's out in public doing his very public thing by the Jordan River, but that doesn't mean he's not an introvert. Like many a gifted professor I've known across the years, he's a high-functioning introvert. He can preach up a storm, he can baptize like crazy, but when all that's done, his preference for not eating and not drinking, in other words, not being around other eating and drinking people is legendary. John is so introverted that the people tease that he is possessed by the demon of, get the hell away from me. <laughs> the people don't respond to him because they're too busy making fun of him. Jesus is clearly not like John. Harrington goes on to say that Jesus' non-ascetic lifestyle identifies him with the wedding game. He's the gospel extrovert. Working from this scripture passage, Tom Long says this about Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, was a flute player. He came with merriment, kingdom joy, and compassion. His ministry was one of eating and drinking with all sorts of people. But this generation stayed glued to their chairs, wallflowers at the kingdom dance. They rejected him. They made fun of him. Look, they said, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. The people don't respond to Jesus because they're too busy making fun of Jesus. That's because Jesus is just so extra. Jesus apparently enjoyed life. 
Yeah, that's not enough of a problem for people who try to make a problem out of life. It's also that Jesus enjoyed living life by associating with the wrong kinds of people. Says here that they were angry with Jesus because he came eating and drinking. Well, everybody comes eating and drinking. You can't live if you don't come eating and drinking. I eat and drink, you eat and drink, and not just in the privacy of our homes. We even eat and drink in church. We especially eat and drink in church. All the time, every chance we get, before worship, after worship, during Sunday school, even during worship, when we celebrate the Eucharist together. Eating and drinking is as central to the Christian faith as preaching and praying, and all of a sudden, somebody is going to reprimand you and me and Jesus for eating and drinking. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. We know how opposition politics works these days just as they worked in Jesus' day. You castigate, denigrate, try to humiliate a person by taking the thing that they are doing and demonizing it. Like they demonized Jesus' eating and drinking. Not because he was eating and drinking, but because he was eating and drinking with the wrong kinds of people. Jesus isn't just an eater and a drinker. He's an extroverted eater and drinker. Me, I'm an introvert. I've already said that. I'm just as happy eating my lunch in my office as I am eating it in the cafeteria. I'm traveling in a beautiful new city for work, and I am just as happy eating my dinner room service in my hotel room as I am sitting with the people out in some fancy restaurant. Jesus, though, Jesus is always out and about. Every once in a while, yes, you read about him going off someplace alone to pray or to get some rest, but no sooner than he's just out there, well, he's back out there. And that's okay. That's probably preferable. A prophet ought to be a people person, but, but what kind of people? That's the thing. If it's with the wrong kinds of people, then you take the eating and the drinking and you twist it, you contort it, you metastasize it into something malignant. You don't say he eats and drinks. You say he eats and drinks to deplorable excess. You say he's a glutton and a drunkard. On top of that, he's a glutton and a drunkard with all the wrong kinds of people, tax collectors and sinners. In his commentary on Matthew, Mark Allen Powell says, the first term, tax collectors, often referred to misfit men, mentally challenged, physically deformed, who were used by unscrupulous revenue agents to extract money that may or may not have been owed by peasants whose social position did not allow them much recourse for objection. The second term, sinners, refer primarily, though perhaps not exclusively, to enslaved sex workers, that is, to teenage girls who have been sold into servitude by distraught fathers unable to pay their debts or indeed the taxes they were said to owe. In general, the phrase tax collectors and sinners meant something akin to the dregs of society, referring to those unanimously regarded as the most pathetic people on the planet. Apparently, Jesus dances through life, making life better for these wrong kinds of people. Look at who he called to be his disciples, not respectable clerics or religious leaders or folks of the ruling class or the aristocracy, but common day laborers, fishermen who had to struggle to make ends meet. 
And right after he calls those disciples so he can eat food and drink wine with them, the Gospel of Matthew says he socializes with every diseased and sick person he can find among the people. Demoniacs, people with epilepsy, paralyzed people, filthy lepers, bleeding women, and Gentiles. Gentiles, I'm telling you, not just those racially suspect Gentiles, but Roman soldier Gentiles, centurions. Centurions, I'm telling you, the people who conquered and occupy our own people in our own land. And then he even associates with our own people who break the Sabbath and the purity and the holiness laws and traditions. Jesus enjoys his life by acting the fool like a glutton and a drunkard with those kinds of people. And if he's dancing with them, he must be one of them. That's why we don't respond to him. We can't respect the man who acts like that with people like that. Jesus doesn't even debate the point. He accepts what they say about them, about him, and then he pushes back with what on the surface appears to be a strange proverb about wisdom. Wisdom will be vindicated by her deeds. The whole business of talking about wisdom as a feminine force is bad enough in this masculine culture. But to make matters worse, Jesus appears to be saying that he is dancing because of wisdom. Maybe even dancing with wisdom and in his gluttony and drunkenness, dancing with wisdom and the wrong kinds of people. But wisdom, Jesus' primary dance partner, Jesus says, will be vindicated by her deeds. As Paul explains the situation, he says, in response, Jesus quotes a proverb that alludes to the personified figure of wisdom mentioned in such writings as Proverbs chapter 8. At the very least, to say that wisdom is vindicated by her deeds is to affirm that the ultimate course of events always reveals who has made the wise decisions. And Jesus is claiming that the wisdom of his and John's actions will be proved right in time. Well, what actions are those that Jesus is talking about? They are the so extra actions of Jesus. In the text just before this one, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus asking if he is the one they have been waiting for. Do you remember how Jesus responds? Jesus' answer gives content to wisdom's deeds. What are wisdom's deeds? It's all so extra. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the poor receive the good news of promise. The dead come back to life. That is what evangelical extroversion looks like. That is what wisdom, dancing with Jesus, looks like. The key, the key question now is, how do we respond? What are we going to do about it? We see Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. How do we respond? We see Jesus dancing with wisdom. How do we respond? We see Jesus doing the deeds of wisdom. How do we respond? We see extra, extra written all over Jesus and Jesus' ministry. How do we respond? What are we going to do about it? Yes, this text is about Jesus' religious leadership, but at its core, 
This text is more about the people than it is about Jesus. This text is implying that discipleship is not about the leader. Discipleship is about the follower. Discipleship is not about the pastor. Discipleship is about the parishioner. Discipleship is not about the preacher. Discipleship is about the congregant. Whatever the style of the leader, pastor, preacher, the question is, will the follower, parishioner, congregant hear God's call through their ministry? Will they respond? Will we respond. In fact, if a minister's style and a minister's content and a minister's message call us latter-day disciples to engage people we have not engaged before, enter situations we have avoided before, stand up for issues we have ignored before, will we attack the situations that need attacking or will we attack the minister? The way Jesus' people attack Jesus because he was so extra. Kate, you know, is so extra. If there is anybody in this church besides Jesus playing the proverbial flute, doing the dangerous dance with the deeds of wisdom, it's Kate. Look at the deeds that blossom out of her dance with God's wisdom. Kate is smiling all the time. Kate is sharing all the time. Kate seems so optimistic all the time. Kate has this hopeful attitude about the world and the church so much of the time. And Kate backs up that hopeful attitude for the world with a devoted ministry here in the church. Kate exudes the joy of resurrection life in her present life, in her present ministry. What I hope is that our church, Second Church, won't sap that extra from her, but will fuel it, will encourage it, and will participate in it. Because you see, this moment of installing Kate is not so much about Kate as it is about us. The question isn't how will Kate Fiedler model the reign of God. We know how Kate will model the reign of God. She's going to eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. She's going to dance with wisdom among people determined to live in ignorance. She's going to move with joy in situations stagnant with gloom. She's going to transform with hope in circumstances dedicated to despair. The question isn't how will Kate preach the reign of God. We know how Kate is going to preach the reign of God with passion. The question isn't how will Kate represent the reign of God. We know how Kate is going to represent the reign of God like it is a wedding feast. The question is how will we, in light of what we see in Kate, respond to the reign of God? No matter how Kate represents it, no matter for whom Kate represents it. Extra, extra, read all about it. Kate Fiedler has just danced her way into the role of associate pastor of Second Presbyterian Church, Richmond, Virginia. So what are you going to do about it? Amen.